Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Whiplash is a common injury throughout the world and a common origin story for many patients with chronic pain. In today's episode, we talked to Professor Michelle Sterling to find out how we can better screen these patients to see who is at higher risk for developing chronic pain and, most importantly, what we can do as physiotherapists to triage these patients early and change the trajectory of their care. Professor Michelle Sterling is the program leader of the Improving Health Outcomes After Musculoskeletal Injury Program at Recover Injury Research Center. She is also the director of the NHMRC Center for Research Excellence in Recovery Following Road Traffic Injuries. Among many other accolades, she's a fellow in the Australian College of Physiotherapists, associate editor of Pain Reports and the European Journal of Physiotherapy, and also serves on the editorial board of JOSPT and Musculoskeletal Science and Practice. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Okay, so first of all, Michelle, thank you so much for um, joining me today for JOSPT Insights. It is, I'm so excited to dig into some whiplash with you. Yes, thank you for having me. I mean, you have a significant amount of, of research out there. You have so many great papers and so many great journals. So I don't think we've hit on a lot of whiplash-associated disorders on this podcast. So can we just define whiplash? I guess the correct terminology for the symptoms that people report is whiplash-associated disorders, and uh, which we often shorten to whiplash. And then the actual injury itself is the whiplash injury. So that can occur from most commonly from a motor vehicle crash, but also from other traumas such as falls or sporting injuries and so on. So whiplash-associated disorders refers to, you know, the constellation of various symptoms that people report, cardinal one being neck pain, but other symptoms are common, uh, headache, dizziness, pins and needles in the arms, headaches, of course. And uh, not everybody will report all those symptoms, but uh, some people do have a a variety of symptoms that they report. And, and of course, we're still using the ancient, uh, I think from 1995, classification system of whiplash grade naught to grade four. So grade four whiplash is a fracture or a dislocation. And there's not a lot of research on, on, on those. Most of the people fit into the whiplash associated disorders grade two, which is um, uh, symptoms with some signs such as loss of movement. And whiplash grade three means that um, they've also got some neurological, clinical neurological signs of conduction loss. So the most common um, ones that, and the ones that are difficult is the grade twos and threes that do have a propensity to develop chronic pain. Okay, so then are there typical muscles involved in, in these whiplash-associated disorders? How do they typically present? Well, I guess, you know, theoretically any structure in the neck can be injured in, during the, you know, was thought it was a hyperflexion, hyperextension injury, but it's a bit more complex than that. And there's a fair bit of work looking at S-curve development in the spine and so forth that people might want to look at if they're interested. So, you know, any structure, soft tissue structure, 
can be injured. But I think the interesting thing about whiplash is not so much what the pathology is underneath the injury, but then the propensity to develop central sensitization, for want of a better word, and also stress system responses, which seem to play a role. So I think when we're thinking about people with whiplash-associated disorders, we need to think of it more as a you know, condition that potentially is wider than just neck pathology itself. Interesting. So, so more than other injuries or conditions, this really, that like central sensitization is going to be, is going to play a bigger part, it sounds like. Well, it seems to. There haven't been any real direct comparisons. There is some work comparing whiplash to non-traumatic neck pain. So uh, showing that that's true, that there is a greater or more profound signs of central changes or central sensitization in people with whiplash. They report higher pain and disability. They have more distress. There's been no direct comparisons with other conditions, but if we look at the data, there does seem to be this spectrum, if you like, of central sensitization. I use that word loosely, you know, where some people have some signs. Whiplash seem to be down the more severe end. So, yes, there is something, I think, about the injury to the neck that perhaps more threatening to the person and perhaps that sets off a cascade of central type changes. The important thing I think with this condition too is that the person is evaluated appropriately early on, you know, cervical spine rules for x-rays and imaging after trauma and, and you know, we'd advise following those recommendations because, it, you know, the first thing to do is exclude a more serious uh, whiplash grade four, such as a fracture or dislocation. So there are guidelines available for that. Okay. So then let's dig into, if we have the good basis then, so let's dig into the prognosis. So if you're seeing these, this whiplash patient, we do a good thorough evaluation. We understand what muscles are involved, what their greatest symptoms are. Can we go over like the most influential factors that you look at when we're trying to have that conversation at the end of the evaluation of how long this is going to take for you to feel better? We've done a lot of work in that area, a lot of cohort studies. So the most consistent predictors are still relatively non-specific. So the patients with the initially higher levels of pain and disability, the cold hyperalgesia, so whether that reflects some sort of nociplastic pain processing going on, and uh, psychological factors, particularly uh, stress-related factors, stress related to the accident, so post-traumatic stress symptoms. Things such as their muscle control or their muscle strength don't really come out as predictors at all. And I think that's because people with lesser symptoms, those that recover well, probably have those sort of muscle or motor changes also. And so that's not saying that we wouldn't look at their motor control or try and improve their muscle function. Of course we would. But I think that when we're looking at people who aren't going to do so well, there's other important factors that play a role. The predictors, so in in that, when we built that model, we put in a whole lot of predictors from various psychological factors such as fear avoidance, such as catastrophizing. We had motor measures of motor function in there. We had sensory measures. Uh, pain and disability. And the ones that came out was the uh, neck disability index, which is what we use to measure pain-related disability, and hyperarousal symptoms, which are one of the subset of symptoms associated with post-traumatic stress symptoms and age, surprisingly. So that that's available. That's out there. We've actually got it on our um, university websites, which I could give you a link for people. It's, it's automated, so people can go to it and get the patient to complete it 
in the waiting room and then get an idea of the person's risk or not of of poor recovery. I'm so glad you mentioned that CPR, clinical prediction role. (laughs) I keep thinking CPG. We call it WITPredict now. We've given it a name. So you guys, basically, you took the research of like the CPR and made it way easy for clinicians and patients to access. That's awesome. Yeah, that's right. So we've done a lot of work and identified these individual predictors. So, but then people would ask, physios would ask us, well, how much pain is predictive? You know, what combination of factors is it? So we built this regression model. At the end of the day, they are still questionnaire measures. I mean, it could be improved, I think, down the track as we learn more, but it's not a bad starting point. One of the papers in JOSPT, we did compare it to the Arebro because that's another common risk screening tool people use. And we did find that we predict for whiplash has higher sensitivity, so it's good at detecting those who won't recover well, but it has lower specificity. So in other words, some of those that are earmarked early as not recovering well will in fact will recover. But you're going to do follow-up assessments and things. And if they start going on the pathway to recovery, that's terrific. If they're not, if they're not recovering, then we're looking at what sort of treatments can we target, you know, provide these people with to, to recover. So it sounds like this is a great time to then transfer into like what the treatment actually looks like. And what you're saying is education sounds extremely important in this and educating them or identifying with those risk assessment tools what they need to work on. And it's not necessarily going to be the motor control and the strengthening. And a lot of it's going to be more education-based. What does that look like? Current guidelines say education, assurance, and and exercise, and that has a small effect. People still need that. Like the neck uh, injury is the same as any other injury to a foot or an ankle or a knee, where we need to restore muscle function, I shall say. And, um, And the neck's no different or the spine for that matter. But I think in the past, we've sort of focused on that and that only, whereas there's other factors that are important. So in these patients where they're highly stressed, so particularly the hyperarousal symptoms we found to be important for whiplash, uh, we have followed up on that and tried to use this approach where we identify the high-risk people and then target treatment towards them. And in that case, we use we predict to to find the high risk people, and then we use physios. I guess it was a psychologically informed approach that targeted um, stress and helped the patients manage their stress better. We compared that to exercise alone, and there was a, a much there was a clinically relevant difference. It was a bit different than psychologically informed physio, which I know is a broad term, but I just use it so people know what I'm talking about. In that. It- structured. The physios were highly trained. They're already fairly experienced and and they had to follow these six modules over six weeks. So there were things such as teaching the person, the patient about the effect of stress on pain, getting them to be aware when they're stressed, teaching them strategies such as even you know, deep breathing, body scanning, strategies to deal with stress, problem solving skills, uh, positive coping statements, and then trying to teach them to apply these skills in the real world. So for example, you know, the person would actually nominate a scenario where they know they cause some stress. It might be talking to the insurance company, might be to their employer, um, and trying to navigate, you know, provide them with skills to navigate through that scenario. So that's one approach where we targeted a particular risk factor, you know, but it, it was effective. And we showed in a subsequent analysis that the effect of this intervention on their pain-related disability was mediated through a reduction in stress. So it showed that the physios could 
could do this. They could change stress responses. And the exercise was there as well. So in qualitative studies embedded in that trial, the, the physios liked the approach. They using it in other conditions for other patients with other conditions. And the patients liked it as well. So we weren't quite sure whether the patients would think, you know, is this really physio? What are they going on about? But the comments were things like it was great to have for people to consider the psychological aspects of the injury as well, not only the physical aspects. So, But there are other things that we could look at targeting or individualising a little bit more. We've done a pilot study looking at trying to target central sensitisation with early pregabalin in the emergency department. Pregabalin's a bit controversial at the moment, but it was it's only a pilot study to see if we could do this, if it was feasible. And, you know, we could with a few little problems along the way. That showed a promising result also. So it's sort of, you know, the, the theme with this sort of injury is trying to risk screen people, trying to get an idea from very early or in the early stage of the condition, who's at risk, and then doing something different. I think a lot of times people risk screen, but then they don't know what to do, do you know? So so the patient, oh, what do I do now? Another early trial where we, we gave these people, we, we had the right theory and we gave them early multidisciplinary treatment though. And so the ones at risk, we got them to see a psych and a doctor and a physio, and that didn't work. Really? Because I was going to be my next question was like how it sounds like coordination with other disciplines would be big in this population, but it, but it wasn't effective. It would be, but, it, but in the acute stage, they're not, you see, and I think that it's a different scenario in the chronic stage, but in the acute stage, it was a burden. The patients came into the trial and then we said, well, you've got to go and see these three practitioners. They weren't in one spot. They were community practitioners. It was a burden and we didn't get an effect. And so that's what made us think, well, at least here in Australia, the, the practitioners most commonly involved are physios. The, the patients like us. They think it's a physical injury, which it is, of course, but there's these other sequelae. And so by using physios to target early psych responses, you know, was something we thought maybe that's that's the way to go. And that that was more effective than them seeing, you know, having care from multiple practitioners early on. Okay, that is fascinating. So it sounds like you're saying that just as far as treatment goes, this is, again, but maybe even more importantly, a place where you need to treat the entire patient. You can't just treat their neck. You need to be looking at this, at these prognostic factors and you need to be looking at the whole patient to see like what, which one of those factors that we need to like draw into the care right off the bat. Yeah. That's very proactive. That's my theory where, you know, with musculoskeletal pain, someone has an injury or has an onset and we sort of toddle along doing, you know, what we've normally done. And then when they get to three months, everyone starts to get a bit worried that they're not getting better. And my idea is let's do that up the front end. Let's try and differentiate people out as early as we can and then target, you know, try to provide more individual care targeting what how, how the patient presents. You know, in this trial, we targeted stress responses and predict, of course, has the hyperarousal symptoms in it. But there may be patients, of course, that there's other factors that are more important, catastrophizing, uh, you know, worry. I mean, catastrophizing is a terrible term. Fear of movement, you know, it's a matter of, of sort of looking at what they're saying and listening when we're doing our um, patient interview as well as the various questionnaires we use. We just need to be a bit careful about what we say to people. Um, I think, you know, if we say you're, um, 
you know, I've, I've found you're at risk of not getting better. That's not a good thing to say. So we have to use our skills, communication skills, to communicate to the patients, uh, you know, what, what we think and what we plan to do. Yeah, I think I like, we really like the way actually that you worded it earlier talking about, you know, there's just some things in your, in this history that I found that we want to just target right off the bat. And with patients know that when they're stressed, that their pain is worse. Do you know, they, they say that, well, do you know, how was your neck pain? Well, it was okay until I had to go and see the, the lawyer or the insurer or whatever. I use that as an example because it's so common in whiplash and yeah, they know that. So perhaps it's teaching them ways to be able to, to manage that better. We're not saying, we'll, of course, that will take away your stress, but giving them skills to manage this stressful event that's happened in their life, which may be, you know, obviously everybody has stressful lives to a certain extent. So we don't know often what's happened in their past. And that could be a cumulative sort of thing is, is the whiplash injury, the straw that broke the camel's back. But no, regardless, really, I think these strategies help. But, you know, there's the, the guidelines for PTSD say not to give too much treatment in that early period because you can make it worse. You know, you get people to talk about what happened all the time and go on and on and on about it. So I think what we're providing in this stress intervention that we did is more psychological first aid in a way that, that physios can do. But, you know, if by six to eight weeks they've still got high stress levels and, and PTSD-type symptoms, then it's time to refer to, to someone, you know, with experience, mental health. Okay, so there is some multidisciplinary approach, but it's not for everyone. Um, it's actually great if the physio can just start off seeing those prognostic factors and, and getting started on a plan right away. But there definitely are some people, just because of the nature of whiplash, there's more people who end up with PTSD from it who will need to be referred to a mental health professional then at that point. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And and we and our role is to try and not let them slip through yes. the system, I think. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like a lot of these kind of just circle back to some of the same themes and there's, you know, like, I don't know, for our knees and our hips, like we need to be loaded. <laughs> like this is important, a, pro a progressive overload. And for a lot of this back and, and now whiplash stuff, it's, you need to treat the whole person. <laughs> you do. And eventually people, you know, will need same sort of overload too, you know, depending on what they do, if they're sporting people or, um, you know, or on their demands. So, with them, I think the other thing is there has been a lot of focus on motor control, low load stuff in you know exercises in, in whiplash and neck pain. But we do need to progress people as well, I guess, you know, to higher load strengthening work, of course. And my focus, I guess, is on these high risk people. Uh, that would come later, you know, and, and looking at what we can do in these early stages to get them moving, to start thinking about other factors that may be impacting on their recovery. I think there's a long way to go still. You know, there's a glimmer of hope after trial after trial of showing nothing really worked. Um, we have got a few trials now showing some promise. So I think, you know, as things progress, you know, that we'll come up with more evidence hopefully and be able to prevent chronic pain is what I would like to see. Let's, let's be proactive, not reactive, and um, think about things early on than perhaps we have done uh, traditionally. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I mean, I can't imagine anybody who is against that. Uh, we will um, link the specific articles, the um, clinical prediction rule, and the article that you were referencing about the psychologically informed physio. We'll link those in our show notes because those were key things that we hit today. And I think that people would really, if people want to dig in, they can read those. 
Well, Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and laying all that out for us. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. One last time, we want to thank Michelle Sterling for taking time out of her day to come on the show and talk to us about whiplash injuries. And lastly, most importantly, we want to thank all of you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Thank you.